0: I'm happy to be here, and you're obviously happy to be here, and I didn't realize how many states would be represented. To me, it seems like a dozen or something like that. I mean, that's just so good for fellowship, it shows unity, and it's fantastically interesting, too. The title, Will the Real Heretics uh, Please Stand Up? Of course, it's a fun title. It's a book title also, and so how many of you have read that book? Okay, uh, probably 20% of the room. I would strongly recommend that you read that book. That would tie in very nicely with the theme of being countercultural. In fact, when the author wrote it, he was hoping that the Bible-centered churches, the evangelicals, would embrace it. Would say you're right. We need to repent uh, individually and corporately. But they didn't. The most of the Bible churches, the conservative churches in the world, rejected him. They said it was too radical. Anyway, I know that author. He's a good guy. He's actually um, a friend of mine. Now, we have in the, the teaching program, we have a series in AIM that's called Christ and Culture. They're classes on how Jesus engaged culture, God and mammon, that is, materialism and greed, poverty, slavery, the abuse of women, social gospel, medical ethics, Jesus and Empire: The Role and Rights of Women, Sexual Ethics, Jesus and the LGBT Movement, <coughs> Jesus Meets Muhammad, Jesus Meets Buddha, Jesus and Popular Entertainment. Lots of speakers, not just Guy Hammond, but uh, Joey Harris, Tom Jones, myself, and I was going to give away some of these today. I ordered, I bought, uh, I bought ten, and I was going to know uh, if anyone was born on the 14th of any month. It, who's born on the 14th? Come on up and you can take one. Ooh. It's about uh, 10 or 12 hours of viewing. Now, that's not baptism, that's your actual birth into that. There we wow. You too, right? You're born on the 14th. Wow. Okay. I was going to give out more later on in the class, but uh, that, that's true, but there's only one left. <laughs> All right. This is a, a great topic. There's a handout, which uh, you'll be getting, because you won't be able to remember everything, and I don't want you to, to stress over taking notes. But we're looking at the early church, and church history, the early period, it's fun, it's fun. It's interesting. It's a new world most Christians are unfamiliar with. In fact, I don't think I'm overstating to say most Christians are completely unfamiliar with what's gone on in previous centuries. There's so much to learn. It can be humbling. It's useful. You know, the old studying the history of the Old Testament helps us to be better Christians. Right? There are lessons. There are pitfalls to avoid. We see how people changed. We see what happened when they didn't change. We saw how God is faithful and what that means with his people. But we have not only the Old Testament history, you know, a thousand years or so, we've got a couple thousand years looking at the church, and particularly when the church was much purer in the first three centuries. And so I think this is a wonderful. The writers of the early period, the church fathers from the Latin and Greek words for father, uh, gave us what's called the patristics. And patristic studies are studies of the things that were written in the early centuries. So I have a friend who took a year, soon after he left the sect that he was a member of, and he decided to read the patristics, read everything written by all Christians in the first 300 years. This is a lot. I mean, we're talking easily 10,000, 15,000 pages. He read it, and I think it's made him one of the world's uh, leading experts on this subject. That's called patristics. His name is David Bersow, and what he does, I left out the R, but he's a popularizer of patristic literature. He, he makes it readable, uh, he, he explains how it's uh, useful, and it's actually, it's actually captured the hearts of a lot of people in the International Churches of the Christ. Uh, we were in pretty frequent contact yesterday, we talked for an hour, and the last thing I told him, told him before we signed off, I said, uh, I'm teaching tomorrow, guess what my title is? <laughs> little please stand up. And he was just—he's—he's—he's he's, he's a humble guy. He was flattered. He said, "I'm—I'm I'm honored. I'm flattered." And uh, so, I just want you to know uh, how he felt about it. I wish he could be here. Having said that, though, when we look at the early church history, we look at what has survived—this ten or fifteen thousand pages—and it's actually, if you want to count all of it up to con- up to the Council of, of Nicaea. It's probably closer to 30,000 pages. But but in this class, I'm going to be focusing on really the first 10,000 pages. (laughs) The limitations of these documents, which are all in the public realm, one limitation is that they're not inspired scripture. So you can get pretty fired up when you realize what the early church did outside and after the New Testament. But these are not inspired writings. Second. During those early centuries, the church was slowly kind of drifting, kind of inching away from what the apostles taught them. It was very slow. I mean, you can drift one half of 1% every year. What if I said, how you doing, sister? I said, well, I'm only 99.5% as, well, as good as I was last year. I mean, you wouldn't even notice that that, that little bit of a, of a drift. But what if you... You slipped half a percent a year for two centuries. Wow. You'd be gone. Yeah. Wow. And that's what people say, what's the big deal holding to biblical doctrine? Why is it so important uh, to, to, to repent of every sin? Because those little bits of, of drift, inching away, they add up. And it's amazing how far away we can go. Of course, these documents uh, chronicle that. And the church was inching away from the apostolic model. So even in the patristic writings, we can see that they made some mistakes, and and some of them were actually quite early. We have to, uh, people who like to quote these scriptures uh, are pretty selective too. Uh, We tend to quote, as we do the Bible, the verses that support our views, but there are others that may go a different way. That's just a word of caution if you're gonna get into this. Heresy. We talk about real heretics, but what is a heresy? Originally, a heresy is not a blasphemous idea something that will send you to the rack something that will get you tied to the stake a heresy just means a a breakaway group it's actually from a a word that means to decide like to make a decision in another direction now we use it heresy is really bad false doctrine but originally there was pretty good latitude when it came to doctrine as long as it wasn't the basic things but the danger was people separating because when the relationship is broken We can end up believing bad things about each other. So choosing to separate more than embracing wrong teaching. And number four, which I didn't type in there, I was typing so quickly I missed a whole number. No, I'm kidding. I just thought of this five minutes ago. Uh, It's a theory sociologists of religion have come up with. It's It's called church sect theory. Have you heard that? Is anyone studying sociology? So you've heard it. And you've heard it, but no one else. Maybe you've heard it too. So the idea is a sect is a group, any religious group we count, that's in a very high state of tension with society. That is, it's rejected the dominant values of the people among whom they live and attempt to spread their teaching. So uh, uh, someone's in a sect, they're constantly going against the current. It's hard. In fact, it's so hard that normally... After a predictable cycle, members of the sect relax, they slow down, and then they become a church. Now this is not a biblical definition. But I'm saying the sociologists, because most Christians, so called, are so lukewarm, they'll say, well, church is a group that, you know, they just they basically accepted the story that the stories that society gives. They're not really countercultural at all. The sect is countercultural. Well, if that's what it is, then I want to be a sect member, not a church member. Okay, enough of introduction. The other thing I need, if I'm going to continue, is a bottle of water. Okay, there are so many different areas of, of difference that uh, I, I thought of 10 or 12. I'm only going to do four. Before we do that, though, does anyone have a birthday today? Yesterday. Yesterday. Well, what I wrote down was yesterday, today, or tomorrow, but we only have one left. Although we could cannibalize, we could cannibalize this. Yeah, it's, it's got all these, got 10 discs, I think we could rip them apart. Okay, who's born tomorrow? No one born tomorrow? Anyone born yesterday? Okay, come on up. I know you look like more than one person, but that's okay, you can come up to him. And you can share. Are you from the same city? Is he, a, is he in Atlanta? Yeah. Okay. You don't need to share. You, you can sit down. Yeah, you just share. All right. Okay, areas of difference. So what, what we're looking at, the, the idea of the real heretics, when David Bersow wrote that book uh, more than 20 years ago, he, did, he, had, he was sharing what he had learned, that many of the things that characterize evangelical Christianity, that is, Christianity that says you need to follow the Bible, you have to be born again, right? Jesus, the Son of God. In Georgia, that would be most Baptists, okay? Pentecostals for sure. What he discovered is that many of the teachings of the evangelicals were discussed in the early church. And they were discussed as heresies, as dangerous teachings that must be rejected. This would be pretty surprising. It's not that different to some of you who came from a more religious background. Maybe you were from a very traditional church, and you read, you read the Bible, and your friends were showing you verses and chapters and books, and you, it started dawning on you, and then it was a horrible feeling. I feel like everything I've been taught is wrong. That's a hard thing. Of course, it's an overreaction. It's hard to get everything wrong. But when so many significant things are wrong, it's really disorienting. So I picked four areas. The first is about discipleship. Then we'll talk about conversion. Then we'll talk about money. And then we'll talk about good news sharing. And if you've heard me teach any of these things before, hopefully there'll be some new things. So in discipleship. Now today, in the Protestant world, we are taught that you don't really have to obey God if you believe. Now, not many people, not many pastors would say it's not necessary to obey God. They wouldn't say that but they might imply that because they'll say well this of course is the ideal and no one's perfect and jesus lived the perfect life for us in a sense he obeyed for us so that we didn't need to obey he would live the holy life so that we wouldn't need to live a holy life they might not put it like that but what do they actually say he took our place when god looks at me he sees jesus i'm off the hook and then you just add in once saved, always saved. So where's the seriousness about Christian commitment in that? Martin Luther was credited with the start of the Reformation, which next year will have its 500th birthday, 1517, start of the Reformation. Luther stumbled over many books of the Bible, and he rejected some of them. And the one he rejected the most strongly was the book of James. Because James, giving examples of Abraham and Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho, in chapter 2. James says in James 2.24, so we see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Luther said, that can't be. We're not justified by works. It is faith alone. And when he translated Romans into German, he added the word alone, where the Greek just says faith. He tweaked it, and he got rid of James. Well, this is really unnecessary, because faith and works are not opposed to each other any more than grace and works are opposed. They're two sides of a coin. And I'll just say the Protestants have got themselves so worked up about performance and guilt and grace, that they're using language and believing things that would have been alien to the early church. I mean, really alien. The Bible links love and obedience. It's one of the huge themes of Deuteronomy. In the notes, I just said chapter 7, but you can look, for example, in chapter 7, verses 7 to 9. But really, Deuteronomy talks about love about 20 times. The book of John also does not leave the Protestants with much to stand on in terms of believing in faith alone. Uh, look at John fourteen fifteen, or just listen to my voice if you prefer. Uh, new, this is the Revised Standard Version. Jesus says, "If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and He'll give you another Helper to be with you forever." If you love me, what? Keep my commandments. They go down a little bit further. He says this several times. Uh, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. He loves me will be loved by my Father, I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas didn't quite get it. And then verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, will come to him and make our home with him. Oh. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. So this idea that you could love Jesus but but live in disobedience to his commands is deeply unbiblical. And I know I'm stating it pretty strongly, uh, but this is an area of confusion in all of the so-called Christian world. Even in our fellowship, we get confused. Because we we have cycles, we react, we overreact, the pendulum goes this way and that way. No one is immune from these kinds of struggles. We're no better than other groups in that that sense. So in terms of discipleship, what the modern evangelicals are saying, that really you just need to understand something and believe it, that's all that's important, uh, is heresy. And there was a group in the time of the early church who taught this, they said, Yeah, basically just understand and believe and you're fine. And that was the Gnostics. It was the primary heresy against which the Christians fought in the second century. Gnostics also said that when you died, you went straight to heaven. That's another idea that was totally rejected by the early church. They said, no, you don't. You wait. You wait until Jesus returns. Now, I've tried to make this simpler. Can you see? We're in 1A... No, we're in 1C. So then... Uh, I don't think they had this analogy, though they did have coins. Back then, faith and works would have been two sides of a coin. It's not faith or works, it's both. You can't, you can't have one side of a coin and not have the other. Yeah. I mean, n- not really. You can only see one at a time. But you, know, you, can't, you can't buy a, a cup of coffee, well, even if you could buy it for a stock of a dollar. You couldn't buy it you said, I'm just giving you the front of the coin, the obverse. No, you can't have the other side. No, no, I'm going to keep it. You can't separate it. They go straight together. That was then. Now, though, faith and works are viewed as somehow opposed to each other. And you will hit this the more religious people you reach out to. Of course, the beauty is you don't have to be a genius. You just start reading the Bible, and it's quite clear. Are you with me so far? Yeah. So in terms of just the basic commitment, I think the early brothers and sisters would be shocked at the lack of engagement, the degree of rationalization in the so-called modern church. Number two, conversion. I think we all know that that the, the doctrine of baptism was corrupted eventually in many churches. In the late second century, some parents, I think, I wouldn't call it necessarily superstition. Maybe they just weren't trained enough. But when their babies were dying, this was always an emergency situation. Their babies were dying. Some of these parents baptized them. That is, put them under water. The thought was they're not going to have a chance to have faith and repent um, because they're going to be dying in five minutes or tonight sometime. And so we we want them to be with us. I think the motive was good. The motive was good. But it wasn't necessary to do that. It was a very unusual thing to do, to baptize a baby. And between you and me and the Bible, it's not biblical. But by the 5th century, this was becoming quite common. Quite common, for different reasons. And one is that the theologian Augustine pushed infant baptism, justified it with his doctrine of original sin. It was also popular because more and more, the government assessed the taxes on your household by the number of people in the household. And that was tied to church membership. So he wanted everyone to be baptized so they could collect more tax. Interesting stuff. I've given you a little quotation here from an apologist whose name is Aristides. And you can see the date. And he's saying what he thinks happens when a baby does die. And he did not believe in infant baptism, okay. If a righteous person of their number passes away from the world, they rejoice, give thanks to God. Now, here's the part I want to focus on. When a child is born to any of them, they praise God. And again, if it chanced to die in his infancy, they praise God mightily. As for one who has passed through the world without sins. I mean, those newborns are as clean as a. Let's say babies bottom, that doesn't necessarily work, that depends. That's variable, isn't it? <laughs> you have really younger sisters and brothers, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, but babies are pure, they're clean. That was the view, and as far as I know, and I can ask Mr. Brissot, but I'm pretty sure I've read a lot of these documents too. People didn't teach original sin, they didn't teach that you're born already guilty, you're already born with. Two? No. Three strikes against you? That babies who die will be damned to hell? That's what Augustine taught. They will go to hell. So what Augustine did, because infant baptism, the, the, the populace, the mobs, really wanted this. They really wanted infant baptism. He crafts the doctrine of original sin as a justification for infant baptism, and then both became normative within the Catholic Church. And the uh, Eastern Orthodox Church, the the other side of the empire, had a different take on it, but eventually even they baptized babies. Except, unlike Catholics and Protestants, they always put the baby under the water. Especially the Greeks, because in Greek, that's what baptism is. It's going underwater. say, well, should we baptize by sprinkling? Put someone underwater by sprinkling? You can do it, but it takes a lot of time. (laughs) (laughs) Depends how many... (laughs) What time do you need to be out of the building? Okay. So, conversion. And so then, faith and repentance precede baptism. And baptism is something that changes your relationship to God. It saves you. That's what was taught in the early church, without exception. Now, the traditional churches, and I'm referring, this would be to the ones with the fancy liturgy, and the incense, and the stained glass, and the priestly robes, and all that stuff. The kind of group I grew up in. They would still say baptism saves you. And they do say that. It's in the creeds. But they, they let people without faith be baptized. And the fact is most of them don't really baptize them anyway. They just get them wet. Today only a handful of evangelical churches, you know churches that say they believe in the Bible, um, are following the early teaching. Most notably, the Christian churches and the Churches of Christ. And there's some other groups, and there are always breakaway groups from different groups, who get it right. But it's just amazing to me how a unanimous understanding of conversion decayed, especially because of Augustine, so that from the 5th century on, uh, there was all this confusion. Conversion. So the idea that you would baptize a baby, I think, would have given James and John a heart attack. The idea that you're born with original sin would have given Jude a conniption. I mean, this is not biblical. That's heresy. Today, original sin, that doctrine has spread through almost all of Christianity. Original sin. And maybe we have original guilt, or maybe we're born broken, or maybe we're born into a world that's riddled with sin, but we're not born lost. We're not born already damned. Augustine was wrong. Are you guys doing okay? Yeah. Okay. Number three. Now you can see why I decided not to do ten, I'm trying to be realistic, and also I want to have time for some questions, if possible. Let's talk about money, uh, generosity, lifestyle, wealth, possessions. I saw a film last night uh, with one of the brothers in North River and another one who's the father of someone in this room, and the film is called Money Money Monster. It's pretty good. It's pretty funny, but it was pretty sobering too. Just the ugliness that happens when we, we put money as the most important thing, how it warps our character, makes us deceitful, uh, gets our priorities all twisted. What was the early church like? We know they practiced generosity. They took care of their numbers. We see this in the book of Acts. We see it outside the book of Acts. I mean, in the, in the patristic writings, I remember one, one uh, passage that is quite amazing to me. It's talking about the church in Rome, in the middle of the 200s. And the church in Rome had about 1,500 widows on the list for regular help, just like in Acts chapter 6. They had a number of outsiders they helped, but especially insiders. Now, this, this may surprise you a little bit. I'm going to say something else that was surprising, Now I'm going to return to that thought. I think if if you asked Peter or Paul, should we give 10%, they would be pretty perplexed by that question. 10%? You want to limit what you give to a fixed percentage? The early church did not tithe. Oh no, there was no tithe. Now later on, if you fast forward to 600 A.D., 700 A.D. Yeah, then they tithe because then the doctrine of tithing had been brought in, and tithing was a tax. You didn't pay a 10 percent, you could go to jail. We don't, uh, we don't follow that. Well, I can't speak for all of you. The people from the Midwest are you more hardline than we are here? If people don't give 10 percent, you don't put them in jail, do you? How about Gainesville? Okay. <laughs> so the idea that that you know that there's a percentage you have to give is. That's not right. The Old Testament had various expectations and rules, which applied to some of the people, but not most of the the people didn't have money or animals to give 10% of. So what did they do in the early church? They were generous. They took care of each other. They weren't communist or socialist. They gave away a lot of their wealth. In fact, I think, I may be wrong. I might be wrong on this. But the the, the strong impression I have, from reading these ancient sources, is that the primary way in which they used their wealth was to help those who were challenged by poverty. I'm not talking about people who can't afford the forty or fifty dollars a month for their TV subscription. We're not talking about it. We're talking about people who are truly poor, uh, who who could die, who need the food, they took care of those people. I think that was the top priority. Yes, occasionally they took up money for other reasons. Yes, they supported the preachers and the missionaries. They wanted to make sure they had a roof over their head and they had a meal. There's no use in letting the preachers run, get run down. Uh, we need to keep them in peak condition. But by far, the primary use of funds and wealth was to help the church. Now, I'll be unpopular among well, some of you when I talk about Matthew 25. Matthew 25 is an incredible chapter. It's got three parables. The foolish virgins, and it's got the parable of the talents, and it's got the parable of the sheep and the goats. And what does Jesus say to the goats? He says something very similar to the sheep. But, I mean, to the sheep, he says, whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Of course, the goats was the opposite. They were quite surprised. The early church tended to interpret Matthew 25 as referring not to the poor, the poor in the world, but to the poor within the church. I mean, earlier in Matthew, like if you read Matthew 12 uh, and 13, you meet Jesus' brothers. Jesus makes a point that his brothers are those who hear the word of God and obey it. And so... It's really, there's nothing wrong with having a prison ministry for evangelism. There's certainly nothing wrong for reaching out uh, in the neighborhood. These are good things. I'm just telling you from an historical perspective, from an historical perspective, the focus was on poor Christians. I said, yeah, but didn't that attract a lot of people? It might have affected their motives. They come to church because they'd be taken care of, because people love them so much. Exactly, you got it. And so there were a lot of people who are pretty low on the socioeconomic scale in the early church, because they were taken care of. Now, this is something that requires a lot of thinking. You don't just start a half-baked program without talking it through as a a group of elders, or you want to be able to think about this. But I'm planting that seed, perhaps, if it's a thought. I'm not saying, you know, if someone is begging, you have to see his baptism certificate. If it's Church of Christ, you give it money. If it's Methodist, no money. No, not saying that. <laughs> not saying that at all. Uh, act as your heart prompts you. But but be sensitive to the scriptures. So back then, wealth I mean generosity was commanded, it was commended. Wealth was viewed as problematic. And Jesus said more than once, it could be difficult to be saved if you have money. It could make it quite difficult. And, and wealth was even viewed as dangerous. The more wealth you have, the more unhealthy influence you can have on others, and the more you may be tempted to use your wealth, that power, to basically get certain privileges or exemptions. Think about this. Pretty intense stuff. Well, what about today? Today, most evangelical churches, and pretty much all uh, charismatic churches, you know, those who believe in babbling and so-called prophecy, They believe in some really good things too, but that doesn't make them charismatic. The charismatic makes it's these things they're obsessed with. I mean, it's it's so. If it's not 99 percent, it's very close to 99 percent of them believe in the health and wealth gospel. Wow. Health and wealth are blessings from God. Well, of course they are, but God doesn't just give us health and wealth; He gives us poverty. That too could be a gift, and so can sickness. But the idea that you can tell someone's doing well spiritually by seeing whether she's healthy or not or saying, well, that poor guy's got cancer. Someone sinned. Uh, That's a that's a terrible doctrine. But that is the favorite position. If you've ever listened to guys on the radio, actually, Georgia, there's so many religious stations, uh, there's actually quite a variety. But the people that make it big time, who tend to build very large groups. And there are exceptions. There are exceptions. But these are people who are so successful, so wealthy. And they teach that others, if they support my ministry, you know, God, then he'll support you. You, you give to this ministry, and then you will get the promotion at work. So you can give even more. You'll get the girl. You'll get the job. You'll you'll find it, whatever it is you're looking for. It's also called prosperity theology. Uh, This is incredibly common. And in fact, there's some churches where the expectation is that your pastor has to have nice clothes, jewelry, a very expensive car, and he needs to live at the level that all of us would live at if we were so spiritual ourselves. And some of you know what I'm talking about. Uh, This didn't actually hit me until I'd been a Christian 20 years. Now, I'd gone back to seminary for the third time, and a lot of my fellow classmates from different denominations, well, we just, we had a special event, and that's, that's when I saw what they were driving and how they were dressing normally. It was an eye-opener. Well, why would this be heresy in the early church? Health and wealth, when Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you're, you're going to have to hate your father and mother. We know he didn't mean that literally, but he meant it's going to be hard. you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross. If you're to follow me, you may have no place to lay your head. It's not, if you follow me, your socioeconomic status will improve. It might. If you're wasting your money and now you're saving it, yeah, it might improve. But it might just go the other way. Because, well... It might go the other way but you're part of a family where you'll be taken care of no one will go without and that's the image we have the early church so what is taught today shocking I mean really shocking stuff the so-called health and wealth gospel I want to give you one more area which is a it's actually a very new thought for me and I don't really know, don't know what to call it this is the first time I've taught it today Self-promotion, progress. How do we think of the, um, the 12 disciples? When we think about the 12 disciples, do we emphasize that one of them walked on the water or that he, he took his eyes off Jesus and he sank? Wow. Mm-hmm. that same guy kept putting his foot in his mouth? Do we look at the, the quarrels in these disciples about who'd be greatest? Do we focus on their thickness, their slowness to, you know, slowness on the uptake? Uh, they're really messed up. And then we think that's great because I'm like that and we relate to them and so <laughs> forth. And there's some truth in all that. But the early church didn't portray the, the apostles as Dummies or as people who were selfishly jockeying for position they were high power people they were deeply trained in the word of god they were powerful but they were also humble we and i think we got this from protestantism you may or may not consider yourself protestant but that's the group out of, that's kind of the group behind the group behind the group that we came from all right yeah. and so we're affected by that genetically it's in our It's in our church family DNA that we find it quite easy to say less than flattering things about the apostles, except for Paul. I mean, because he's so highly trained and because he wrote one quarter of the New Testament, right? Well, here's an interesting thing. The early church documents speak highly of the apostles, incredibly highly. Well, then why? Okay, what are you saying here? Are you saying that we're interpreting the Bible wrong? Probably. In this way. She <laughs> said, I've never taught this before, so I didn't qualify it right. You know, when Paul is, when Paul, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, I don't want to boast, but you make me. And then what does he do? Does he list all of his honors and awards and things he studied, languages he spoke? talks about all the suffering he's gone through, the things that make his life hard, the shipwrecks, the robberies, and so forth. Wow. He hesitates to put much of an emphasis at all on his achievements. Like in Philippians 3, I count them as scubalum. I won't translate scubalum, but that's what he, that's what he considered it to be. Paul, when the Corinthians are getting too big for their own britches, in First Corinthians four, Paul says, It seems God has put us apostles at the end of the procession. He even describes them as themselves. He describes himself as the what does he call it? The dregs? Scum. The scum? The scum of the earth. So they weren't exactly reveling in you know their reputation. They're kind of putting themselves down. How different. You know, Peter Says to the beggar, gold and silver I have none, none, I do not have. What I have I give to you, which which shows that he wasn't a healthy, wealthy wealth person. But also just shows how ordinary these people were. Oh, they were extraordinary people. But I mean, in the way they're related to other people, they're ordinary. Now, let me let me make it more clear what, what I'm saying. It's true, in Matthew, the apostles are kind of slow. And they they don't have the faith they need to have. And who wrote Matthew? If the tradition is correct, Matthew. And when he when he talks about the calling of the twelve, he just says you know Matthew or Levi his other name, um, a tax collector. I don't think in in the ancient world that was a credential you wanted to mention, any more than you know Judas who betrayed him, a tax collector. Who wrote Mark? Well, the early second century we learn from one of the patristic guys, one of the patristic guys named Papius. And Papius said that Mark accompanied Peter and wrote down what Peter taught. And he tried to represent Peter's teaching, Peter's experience of Jesus. He wrote it. The chronology was not necessarily direct, but You could trust what he said. So, when Peter is put down in the book of Mark, maybe that shows us something about Peter's humility. I mean, in Matthew, blessed are you, Simon, son of John. This has been revealed to you, you know, not by men, but, but by heaven. I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. Peter was recognized as the the lead guy, he was the Prince of the Apostles, now he wasn't a pope, Matthew 16 does not prove the papacy, but I think he is being recognized by Jesus as the main guy. But when we come to the Gospel of Mark, the parallel passage to Matthew 16 is Mark 8. What happens to the part about the inside of who Jesus was and blessed are you, Simon son of John? It's missing. Maybe Peter didn't want that in there. They were hesitant to put themselves in too positive a light. And I think that's why the Gospels are so toned down in a way. That's good for us, because it helps us to relate. But you get to the book of Acts, and it's quite different. You know, Luke wrote Acts. Luke didn't know the apostles the way, you know, he's not one of the original guys. But you go to the book of Acts, and wow, look at Peter and John, and and look at all these guys, they're amazing. And it's not just because Pentecost came and now the Spirit is doing what the Spirit does. It's that they're not responsible for writing the book of Acts. This is another guy. He he tells us what it's really like. And the feeling you have in the book of Acts is like the feeling in the patristics. These apostles were amazing. They went all over the world. Each of them was an international evangelist going here and there. Uh, You know, Paul goes to Spain, we read in 1st Clement. Uh... It's a very different perception from what you get, different perspective than what you get in, in the gospel themselves. So what am I saying here? I think there's a caution for us. After the first missionary journey, I guess after all the missionary journeys, uh, Paul gathered people together and you know, shared all the good news. But how do he share the good news? Because sometimes it's a very thin line between sharing what God's doing and then sharing what God's doing through us. And maybe we need to take a page from the book of Peter, which is the Gospel of Mark, and be very hesitant to set ourselves up as these glorified human beings. We're Christians, and we may be doing some awesome things, but the biblical way is not to boast. It's not the way of power. It's not the way of the world. See, the early Christians valued humility, but now the cult of personality is rampant. So many churches, even here in Atlanta, that are mainly known by their preacher who has tremendous influence, the pastor, I mean. You don't hear of any such thing in the New Testament, nor do you hear of such a thing in the first three centuries, where, you know, we belong to the church of Thaddeus, we belong to the church of Bartholomew, of we belong to uh, the church of John, son of Zebedee. They didn't do that. And when the Corinthians, and the Corinthians didn't do that, but the Corinthians were a little confused. And Paul explodes. Hey, was Paul crucified for you? What are you doing? Today, the cult of personality and boasting, self-promotion is so strong. We have to watch out for that. Are there other things we could talk about? Sure. The Sabbath, end times, the place of Israel, treatment of enemies, modesty, holy living, uh, how they loved each other. There's many more areas in which knowledge of patristics uh, reveals that modern Christianity is often unchristian. I mean, the Sabbath was not an issue. I mean, they actually—they say it's not an issue. They didn't have Sabbath. They weren't Sabbath keepers. They appreciated the principle, but they refused to form groups based on the interpretation of Sabbath. The end times, see, they knew that Jesus might come back at any time, but they also understood the already, but not yet. The fact that, yes, in a sense, the prince of the world has been judged. We have seen the end. The lamb has been victorious. That's the kind of, the already, but there's also a not yet. It's not fully taken place yet. The, the, the new age of the heavenly kingdom has come here. We're enjoying it already. We're in the kingdom, but the kingdom continues to come, and the kingdom will ultimately be fulfilled in a, in a celestial state. So it's partly here, it's partly not here. So they weren't these, these Adventist-type groups who are making always making predictions on when the world would end. I mean, there were groups who tried that in their early church, but they were, um, they were put in their place. The way they treated enemies, we could talk about. You know, they refused in the first three centuries to even kill an enemy, even in the army, and they would resign or even be executed if they were asked to kill, take the life of another human being. Not only that, not only were they pacifists, but they opposed capital punishment in the first three centuries. That's not in the Bible, I'm just telling you what I read. Holy living, modesty, oh my goodness, professions, clothing, language. But you see, this would take a lot more time. I've picked four areas. Discipleship, conversion, generosity, and I don't know, what do you, what is a better word for number four? Is it humility or... Pride, help me out with that later on. See see me in the fellowship because I would like to to know what to call that thing. But when we look at the church then and we look at churches now, I think the leaders of churches now would have been rejected. The doctrines of churches now, many of them were roundly disowned by the early church. Early Christians valued humility. Now, self-glorification. Back then, Wealth was considered something that could even prevent you from being saved. Now we've got health and wealth being taught all over the place. the early church, you had to have faith and repent before you were put under the water. And now, it's like a shopper's paradise. You can get any version you want. It's all messed up. Back then, faith and work were two sides of a coin. If you were asking questions about obedience, what were you? Were you some kind of weasel trying to get out of discipleship? You've got to be obedient if you want to be saved. And that would not have thrown people, Jesus himself said, equally strong things. But now, huh, that's considered to be false doctrine. That's work salvation. You know, people say God's love is unconditional. You can live any way you want. Well, I'm not sure that that's biblical language. If you read Deuteronomy and John 14, God's love does come with certain strings attached. And don't, don't say you love him if you're not obeying him. They are deeply organically connected. And so many of the heresies of the early church are perfectly acceptable in most modern evangelical churches. And also, we have much to learn from history. It's not just mental laziness. It's also arrogance if we're going to ignore the past. We have time for just a few questions. And, um... uh, Kendall, what time? Uh, Ten minutes. Ten? Ten minutes. Okay, that's good. So that'll be five to... Seven questions. I saw your hand first. Um, yeah. So I was actually talking with a friend that I work with um, this week, and she was saying how she had actually come to like uh, not to narrow out campus ministry, but she had come to Kennesaw's like Alpha Omega and North River a few times. You talked, talked to a friend who came to Alpha and Omega a few times. Basically. And okay. So thing that she was kind of caught up on and one thing that she like, didn't agree with was baptism. And so I was just wondering, because I know that's how my family is, that's how my old church is, I was just wondering what your kind of opinion or viewpoint was on like, why baptism is like, a thing that trips so many people up. Baptism trips up people because the Protestants said when they divorced faith and works, yeah. then anything you had to do became a work. Mm-hmm. Even though baptism isn't a work, It's technically you're passive, Something done to you, it's not something you do. But even that got lumped in there, along with church attendance and giving money and, and and that explains a lot of things. She's been affected by the history of things. My advice to you would be to focus on the doctrine of repentance. It's not if she's amazingly pure-hearted, she wouldn't have got hung up on baptism. I don't think so. She's hanging on a little bit too much to her family. She's got to be willing to take steps, even if she's rejected by her friends and family. But If the repentance is not taken care of first, baptism is just a technicality, and I don't think it's a productive conversation. I would really focus on repentance. Or even talk about, hey, you know, Luther rejected the book of James. Why would he do that? I mean, that could lead into a pretty good discussion. He rejected Hebrews, because Hebrews has one saved, always saved. That could lead to a pretty good discussion. But I wouldn't get into the baptism thing. She's in God's hands. He's the judge, not you. You don't have to say, you're going to hell. But, you know, we do need to preach what the Bible says Second. Um, so I know in the early church, a lot of the culture, you know, was, hey, Jesus is going to come back to the point, Thessalonians, where people were quitting their jobs and being lazy about it. Um, but how do you think, uh, from a biblical perspective or an early church perspective, they would look at our modern mentality towards work in America? Yeah, yeah so now, so firstly, it's true. that Thessalonians, some of the Thessalonians were thinking that, well, if Jesus is coming back soon, let's just kind of drop out, opt out, and, and just prepare for that. Uh, and Paul corrects them. I mean, so they, they had the already, but they didn't have the not yet. It's not yet. He's already here. We're victorious. It's going to happen. You, you, will be, you will meet him in the clouds, but you need to live a productive life. I just wanted to make that clear for everyone else. Now, your question was, how would they deal with that confusion? How would they deal with, uh, in America, we can emphasize oh, yeah. work, promotions, getting... The yeah, they job. would say that that's a bit short-sighted. Mm-hmm. I don't think they would say, don't work hard and be promoted, but make sure you're investing yourself in the kingdom of God, yeah. not in the kingdom of, of men. Because yeah. yeah. most Americans don't think about it at all. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're, they're, okay, there are these strange groups who are always predicting the end of the world, but you know, they're kind of laughed at. And they show up as newspaper articles. You know, one more failed uh, prediction, but yeah, and those people were hanging on to the to the, the op- they were thinking, they, they were doing kind of the opposite thing. But right now we don't even think about the coming of the Lord. But how does First Corinthians end? Come, O Lord. Come, O Lord. You know, Maranatha. Okay, let's go to the right side. Right there. So, earlier you said that faith and How would you explain that to someone who doesn't understand how we go ahead? If someone doesn't understand how faith and works go together, use some illustrations. And when James, the brother of Jesus, wrote his, James, he gave two illustrations. And so what I would do is I would look at James 2, 14 to 26, and or 11 to 26, say 14 to 26. Look at those two illustrations, make sure you understand, them, and then you can share that. Because, you know, faith without deeds is like the body without the spirit. It's dead. You can't say, well, God loves me unconditionally, I don't have to obey. No, faith without deeds is dead. And and he gives two great illustrations. One is of a man, one is of a woman. And that that should, well, maybe not anymore. i would say that. That would cover the genders. Maybe not anymore. Okay, that's good. You're (laughs) next. I under a military family, and um, no, no one else in my family is a disciple, and we're basically trying to sit down. And I saw to them basically kind of piggyback off what she was talking about with baptism, and it's hard to convince them of um, talking about original sin and whatnot because uh, they pretty much, they grew up in, and they, they're they immigrants, and they grew up in an atheist country under communism, and it's kind of hard to convince them that there's no such thing as original sin that would do come out pure. and what 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 com- what communist country was that? Soviet Union. On the of uh, Republic. Russia. Okay. Yeah, and uh, they basically just um, what they they served in the military. To, they served active duty. My dad was 30 years active duty. Mom's twenty five, and they were just basically. It's hard. How would I go about convincing them that there is no that we don't have to baptize my nephews? Are five and two years old and... Well, I mean, you and I know it's not gonna make much of a difference whether they baptize the nephews or not. Yeah. Because we don't really think anything is happening. But yeah. them, it's probably not, nothing's happening either. It's more of a dedication ceremony, which in and of itself may, may be neutral. But I would say to you and to everyone, if we're not ready to be serious about the message of the cross and repentance, then the discussion of baptism is it's premature. Their problem is not that they're not baptized. The problem is that they've not understood who Jesus is. That's where we have to focus. In the early church, yes, doctrine was important. But not like, for us, doctrine is just technical. It's like a checklist. Teach this. Don't teach that. the early church, even Jesus doesn't emphasize doctrine very much. Not like that. He emphasizes lifestyle. And healthy doctrines are are those that help you to be healthy spiritually. Unhealthy doctrines like health and wealth, and in fact these other things I've mentioned, make you sick spiritually. I would, that's what I would say. I hope that's helpful. Way over in the far right. So, um, so I grew up, and then primarily. (laughs) Apparently there's widespread, there's a lot of feeling about that. Maybe don't begin with those words. Right now, the prosperity gospel is very much something I talking about. You know a lot of the key speakers like T.D. Jakes. yeah. So, I have never studied the Bible with someone right now that really believes that, but I know so many people that do. What, re- I guess, what scriptures do you have? How would you approach that? Because I want to learn more about that because it's so prominent now. And um, as you were talking about you have to give me? An there are so many scriptures and examples of so many people that refute it. It's almost comic. Like the only way you can really believe that is you, if you just read odd verses in the Bible. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deflect that one to Ed, my friend. Ed. I mean, for my part, if you go to my website www.elithjacoby.com, type in the word prosperity, you'll find a bunch of articles and scriptures and angles on this alright, I, I produce a lot of material on that very thing but it is